In 2006, a crack astronomy unit was sent to an observatory for a time they'd like to omit. These men promptly escaped from the University of Manchester to the podcast Underground. Today, still wanted for their knowledge of the universe, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have an astronomy problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can download the Jodcast. The Jodcast. Pitying the fools that don't listen to astronomy podcasts. With Stuart Lowe, Megan Argo, Nick Rattenbury, Ian Morrison, and David Alt. The Jodcast. January issue. Hello and Happy New Year and welcome to the first Jodcast of 2007. Yep, we're both back. Despite you thinking, Dave, that you'd have the whole thing to yourself again. Curses. Foiled again. Yes, we're, we're both here diligently in between Christmas and New Year, sandwiched between two holidays. I do have some mince pies, so I'm quite happy, actually. I do actually have some mince pies downstairs. Oh, well, I have mince pies right here. Well, my, my mince pies are homemade. So are mine. Mm-hmm. Anyway, enough talk of mince pies. What have we got coming up this month, Dave? Coming up on this month's show, we have Dr. Martin Hardcastle of the University of Hertfordshire, and he'll be talking about active galactic nuclei. Then we have a special section on the square kilometre array. We'll have our roundup of the astronomy podcasts that are out on the web at the moment. We have your favourite, the night sky. But unfortunately, Nick and Tim are currently weighed down by a lot of turkey. So unfortunately, we're not getting the Ask an Astronomer segment this month. But yes, they'll be back again next month. However, before all of that... Oh, hang on, Dave. What? Um, We do have some extra news. Go on. For the last year, we've been trundling along with absolutely zero budget, which is why our sound quality's been a little bit iffy here and there. Mm -hmm. But Nick and I made two applications for grants, one from the UK's Particle Physics and Astronomy Research Council, also known as PPARC, Mm -hmm. and the Institute of Physics. We are very happy to say that we got both of them. So we now have a limited amount of money um, in which to pay for some sound recording equipment. So we can afford those little phone things to put in front of microphones. Well, that is indeed great news. But we now have the main section of the news. This month read by Megan Argo. In the news this month. First results from Stardust released. Swift spies an unusual gamma ray burst. Large mountain range spotted on Titan and a survey finds more than 1,000 new galactic planetary nebulae. Early analysis of the particles collected by the Stardust spacecraft as it flew by Comet Vilt 2 in 2004 have resulted in many interesting samples of material. Much of the rock collected by the craft is typical of what was expected from a comet formed in the outer solar system, but some of the samples suggest that at least some material formed at higher temperatures near the Sun in the early solar system and somehow made its way to the outer reaches of the solar neighbourhood. It is thought that, due to cometary activity caused by coming close to the Sun, the surface layers of the comet will have been lost so that any particles now released from the comet date back to the early stages of the solar system, allowing us to sample this early material. Most of the samples which have been analysed so far show the same composition as early inner solar system material from asteroids, but some of the samples are pre-solar grains, material from before the formation of our solar system, and some samples consist of minerals which form at high temperatures and are usually found in meteorite inclusions, small spherical balls of rock formed when gases and liquids separate at high temperatures. 
These could only have formed very close to the Sun in the early solar system. These grains could have come from outside the solar system, although the results of isotope testing show that their composition is identical to that of known meteorites which formed in the inner solar system. This result shows that there was large-scale mixing of material in the early solar system. There are many more samples yet to be analysed, and more results are expected over the next few years. Observations from the SWIFT satellite have detected an explosion which does not fit into the current classes of known events. The gamma-ray bursts which the satellite studies are the result of violent events in other galaxies, which release enough energy that they can be seen easily here on Earth. Gamma-ray bursts, or GRBs, so-called because they emit large amounts of high-energy gamma radiation, are classified according to how long they remain bright. Short-duration GRBs last for less than two seconds, while long-duration GRBs can last much longer. The different classes are thought to be caused by different types of event. Long-duration GRBs usually occur in star-forming regions of galaxies, and are often associated with detections of supernova explosions while short-duration GRBs are seen to occur in regions of lower star formation and are thought to be associated with the merger of dense neutron stars. A burst recently detected by the satellite and reported in Nature during December does not fit into either of these classes. The event, known as GRB 060614, lasted for about 102 seconds, placing it in the long-duration category while other features of its spectrum appear more like those expected from short-duration bursts. Unusually for a long-duration event, this GRB did not have an associated supernova event, despite searches of very deep images made with optical telescopes. Of all long-duration bursts, only one other has not been identified with a bright supernova explosion. These events challenge current models of GRBs, and the astronomers studying this event suggest a new classification scheme for GRBs should be introduced to include events such as these which do not fit with current theories. Images released by the Cassini team in December show a large mountain range on Saturn's largest moon, Titan. The images, taken by the spacecraft during a flyby of the moon on the 25th of October 2006, show the largest mountain range yet found on Titan. The range is 150 kilometres long, 30 kilometres wide, and 1.5 kilometres high at its tallest point. The images also show white patches near the top of some of the mountains, which could be a sort of snow composed of frozen methane from Titan's atmosphere. Infrared images, combined with radar data from other instruments on board the craft, are combined to give more detail about the shapes of surface features such as these, helping to determine the geological processes which formed them. Images taken during the same flyby also show further evidence for a volcano on the surface, with a fan-shaped feature which may be material flowing from a vent. Cassini's next flyby of Titan is scheduled for the 13th of January 2007. A team of researchers from nine countries has completed an eight-year survey of the southern sky, hunting for new examples of objects known as planetary nebulae. Using the UK Schmidt Telescope at Siding Spring Observatory in Australia, the team have imaged the Southern Galactic Plain and parts of the Large Magellanic Cloud, finding more than 1,000 new planetary nebulae in total. These spectacular objects are nothing to do with planets. Instead, they are the remnants of stars like our Sun when they reach the end of their lives. The core of the star shrinks and cools, becoming a white dwarf, while the outer layers are blown off, forming an expanding bubble of warm glowing gas. 
One of the questions the team want to try and answer is where the mass goes when one of these planetary nebulae is formed. Some of the mass of the original star stays in the white dwarf, while some becomes the expanding gas cloud. But up to 85% of the mass just disappears from sight, says Dr Quentin Parker of the Anglo-Australian Observatory and Macquarie University, who led the study. Using the sensitive images from this new survey, the team have found very faint halos around 60% of the planetary nebulae seen in our galaxy, which had not been previously detected. These halos could explain where some of this missing mass ends up. And finally, a French satellite designed to look for extrasolar planets was successfully launched aboard a Soyuz rocket from Baikonur in Kazakhstan on the 27th of December. The Koro satellite, which stands for Convection, Rotation and Planetary Transits, will study stellar interiors as well as searching for planets around other stars within our galaxy. Most of the planets discovered so far are large gas giants similar in size or larger than Jupiter. Smaller rocky planets similar to the Earth are very difficult to detect from the ground because of their small size. The Koro satellite will observe many thousands of stars at a time using a 30cm telescope and an array of CCD cameras. The aim is to detect the tiny dip in brightness of a star when one of these small planets passes in front of it. Jupiter-sized planets cause a dip in brightness of around 1%, while Koro will be sensitive to brightness variations of 0.01%. In addition, two of the spacecraft's four detectors will be used to look for seismic events on stars, a technique known as asteroseismology. Like the Sun, many stars experience oscillations similar to earthquakes we are familiar with on our own planet. By looking for these surface vibrations in other stars, the researchers, led by Annie Baglin of the Observatory of Paris, hope to determine details about the stars, such as their mass and internal structure. Uh, thanks, Megan. OK, Dave, what's coming up next? Well, first off in our series of interviews today is uh, Dr Martin Hardcastle from the University of Hertfordshire. He researches active galactic nuclei. That's right, yes. And Nick went to talk to him before Christmas to find out just exactly what they are. With me today is Martin Hardcastle from the University of Hertfordshire. Just tell us a little bit about you and your research, please. OK, well, um, yeah, for the last 13 years or so, I've been working on radio galaxies. Jodrell Bank is a particularly suitable place to be talking about radio galaxies since... Um, a lot of what were the early work on radio galaxies was done here. A lot of the, um, the early discoveries were made. The first, the first ever map of a radio galaxy was made by University of Manchester students slightly more than 50 years ago. Just so we know what we're talking about, what is a radio galaxy as, as opposed to a normal galaxy? Well, that's a very good question. Most galaxies are, are sources of radio waves. If you look at the, the night sky in radio, if you had radio eyes, you would see that the Milky Way is a strong source of radio waves. The radio emission actually there comes from charged particles in, in the galaxy moving about in the magnetic field inside the galaxy. Now, the Milky Way is not a radio galaxy. It's a source of radio waves, but, it's, but we don't call it a radio galaxy. We reserve the, that term for galaxies that are very much brighter in the radio than the Milky Way, maybe 100 to 1,000 times brighter. And the radio emission in those cases comes not from the uh, interstellar medium of the galaxies themselves, not from the, the ordinary um, charged particles and magnetic fields you expect to find in a galaxy, but they're powered by jets from an active galactic nucleus in the centre of the galaxy. 
an active galactic nucleus. Perhaps you could explain what that means. Something's going on in the active galactic nucleus. What is it? Sure, that's right. The, um, so what, what is it that makes a galactic nucleus active? The best way to tell this story is to forget about the history and, and to say what we know now. We now know that in the centre of all massive galaxies there is, a, there is a supermassive black hole. In the Milky Way, for example, we know very well there's a, there's a massive black hole with a mass of about 3 million times the mass of the Sun. Um, in the most massive elliptical galaxies that we can see um, in the nearby universe, the masses of those black holes can go up to a few, a few billion times the mass of the Sun. So every, essentially every, every massive galaxy has a black hole. Now, in most of those galaxies, nothing very much is happening. The black hole is sitting there, and occasionally it might swallow a star, or it might suck up a little bit of gas. People think of black holes as cosmic vacuum cleaners, but they're not. They just behave like any other source of gravity in the galaxy. So if something doesn't come very near them, then nothing happens. And it's very hard, in fact, to detect them. You detect them by seeing the motions of stars around them and the motions of gas around them. It's quite a, a, a difficult process to, to detect and measure these black holes. But in an active galaxy, there's a lot of stuff going on around the black hole. Material is falling in, and that material can power all sorts of phenomena in the centres of galaxies, including radio galaxies, but also including things that people have often heard of, like quasars, seafoot galaxies, and so on. So when you're talking about the radio galaxies, you're talking about they're typically active galactic nuclei galaxies. They have a supermassive black hole at their centre, drawing in lots of material and all sorts of interesting physics is occurring and producing strong radio waves. How many of these galaxies do we know of? We know of a large number, but then we know of a large number of galaxies. I mean, we know of thousands of radio galaxies, but we know of millions of galaxies. As a fraction of, of the, uh, the total, radio galaxies are pretty rare they're a small fraction of the total number of active galaxies, in fact. But there are reasons why they're particularly interesting. Most active galaxies, what you see is emission mostly from, just from the central regions around the supermassive black hole. You see bright optical, um, you see X-ray emission, you sometimes see some radio emission. That's a sign that processes are going on immediately around the black hole. But radio galaxies are unique in that they can influence the environment around them, not just at the black hole, but, but on, on very much larger scales. They can have effects on scales that are much larger than the galaxy that we can, the optical galaxy that we can see, in fact. The way they do that is that is jets of material leave um, the region close to the massive black hole and... and I should say at this point that nobody really knows how these jets are generated. That the, the mechanism of getting jets out when you expect matter to be falling in is... There are many ideas, but there's no definite answer to that question, simply because in galaxies, apart from our own, though the black hole is too far away to study, um, so we don't have enough information to see how the jets are made. These are jets of what? Again, on very small scales, the answer is we don't know what the jets are made of. We know what they're made of by the time they get out to distances of, say, hundreds of light years from the core, from the very central regions. By that stage, we know that they have got charged particles and magnetic fields in the, and the reason that we know that is that we see radio waves coming from them and the signature of, of, of that sort of collection of very energetic charged particles and magnetic fields is a radiation we call synchrotron radiation, which shows up in the radio. The problem of what the jets are made of is tied up with the problem of how they get out of the central black hole, and, and we don't know the answer to either of those questions. Energy, energy can change its form, so you know, energy jets can get out of the central region in one form and then change into this form of electrons and magnetic field that we see at larger distances.
What do we learn from observations of active galactic nuclei? Well, we learn several things. Um, the most common use of active galactic nuclei in general at the moment is as signposts for a massive galaxy in, in effect. People are using them because you can see them for a long distance. The brightest active galactic nuclei, the quasars, their optical emission can outshine the whole galaxy easily, the whole galaxy that they're in. And so they can be used to look for structure at very large distances. There's some, there's some use of radio galaxies for that purpose as well, but um, that's not really what I think is the main interest in radio galaxies at the moment. You can obviously learn something about the process of material falling onto the black hole, about the evolution of black holes in the universe. That also, I think, is not really the main interest of radio galaxies. The main interest in radio galaxies is that because they affect not just the area immediately around them, but the galaxy and the medium that the galaxy lives in on very large scales, they actually provide a way of getting some of that, that energy out and influencing the galaxy, influencing the evolution of the galaxy and the evolution of the gas that surrounds the galaxy. So what I'm most interested in is, is exactly how the large-scale radio galaxy evolves and how it interacts with the galaxy that it lives in. So you're essentially talking about a radio galaxy as being part of a, a larger galaxy. We see in radio lights a radio galaxy, but it is actually just the radio emission from a larger galaxy. So you're essentially talking about how the radio emission comes from part of the galaxy where matter is essentially being recycled out of the galaxy into this active region and then back out into the galaxy. That tells us what exactly? I mean, that, that, that process of recycling, or, or as some people call it, feedback, tells us about the life cycle of matter in the galaxy in a way. The material that falls into the black hole, of course, doesn't really come out again. That's the definition of a black hole. But energy can be recycled, and energy is being recycled in these systems from the very smallest scales where the, where the black hole is being fueled out to scales that are actually much larger than the optical galaxy itself. So what we're learning about is how, how energy is distributed between the different components of a galaxy and how what you might call the thermal history of a galaxy, the history of, of, of energy transport in and out of a galaxy. In a large galaxy, it turns out that you need, in order to keep the, the, the atmosphere of a galaxy hot, you need processes that transport energy out, just as you have processes that transport energy inwards into the centre. And the interplay between those processes actually explains how the galaxies that we see have evolved. So without understanding how those processes work and without understanding how you get feedback from the centre out to the, the edges, you can't get a full picture of the evolution of galaxies. An interesting phrase there, the, the atmosphere of a galaxy. Do you view galaxies as being something similar to a planet where it has got different components to a galaxy in the same way there are different components to, say, our own Earth, and there are interplays between these uh, various aspects of the object, be it a planet or be it a galaxy? Yeah, absolutely. It's very easy to think of a galaxy as simply a collection of stars, but radio astronomers and X-ray astronomers look at a galaxy in a very different way. They see a galaxy as a collection of gas with, with occasional stars in, embedded in it. In fact, in a massive galaxy, the atmosphere or the halo of hot X-ray emitting gas around a galaxy can be much more massive than the, than the stars. By the time you're looking at a, a cluster or a, a group of galaxies, the hot gas atmosphere dwarfs the planet, so it might, that, that would be like a gas giant. The, the, tiny, the tiny core of stars is all we could see um, in the optical but the, uh, the X-ray gas is much more important in terms of the dynamics and the, the overall mass of the system. So 
even in our own galaxy, there is lots that you can't see. Lots of cold gas, of hot gas, of warm gas, as well. and all we see when we look at the night sky, the stars, effectively. In more massive galaxies, it's even more important to understand all the different constituents of the galaxy. The stars turn out not to be very interesting. A radio galaxy doesn't have very much effect on stars, or vice versa. Stars behave like little solid bodies, but the interaction between the different phases of, of more tenuous gas, the radio-emitting material from the radio galaxy, the X-ray-emitting material from the hot atmosphere, the cold gas that floats around, um, which we don't see until we see it's forming stars, all of these phases interact with each other, and that's the interaction that we're trying to study. Does the radio emission from uh, a radio galaxy change over time? Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it stay the same? Do these things turn off? Do these things appear suddenly? Yes, yes to all of those questions. A radio galaxy grows and changes over its lifetime. As these jets, if you imagine these jets t- suddenly turning on in the centre of a galaxy, what they do is they blow bubbles in the, in the, in the gas of the galaxy. The bubbles are filled with the radio-emitting material that we can observe. It pushes out of the way the other sorts of gas that are normally there in a galactic atmosphere. Those bubbles get bigger, partly because bu- bubbles just do get bigger, and partly because they're, being, they're still being fed by the jets, so more stuff is being pumped into them. So you can imagine, if you, you, you get a large swimming pool and you, and you put an air hose at the bottom of it and you see what happens, you'll see a, a rising bubble, and the bubble will be continuously fed by more air coming up from the air hose. That's the sort of, the sort of process we're seeing. We can't see them get bigger because... In general, we can't see them get bigger because they're already too big, because they're already too far away, and we can't see we can't see things moving on those scales. The sort of radio galaxy that I'm that I would I would typically be studying would be a few hundred thousand light years across. So we're not going to see a very big change if we wait for ten years and look again. But you can, in fact, see things moving up the jets if you look very close into the centre. And we can see other evidence that these things really are expanding. They're pushing material out of the way. They're compressing it and heating it and um, shocking it as, as they go through the, the gas. So we know that they are expanding. And so we expect to see an evolution with time. The problem is that the lifetime of these things is so long. They, they live. We, we, we know that the longest lived uh, radio galaxies may live for 100 million years or longer. So it's not something that you can, you can watch happening in the course of a typical research grant. You have to wait. You you have to get your information about evolution of radio galaxies by looking at lots of them, and that's um, that's part of what we're trying to do. So obviously, you would observe these radio galaxies in the radio spectrum. What observatories, what instrumentation do you use to observe these radio galaxies? Well, um, any radio telescope will find you a radio galaxy. I mean, in fact, for many radio astronomers, radio galaxies are just a nuisance. Um, they are um, some of the brightest radio sources in the sky and they emit um, very boring radio emission in the sense they don't have any um, emission lines or anything that people might might look for. Um, so they're just sources of, of plain, boring radio emission, and you can observe them, therefore, in any frequency, from the lowest frequencies we can observe right up to the, the highest radio frequencies that we, we use as, as radio astronomers. Um, and therefore, you can use any radio telescope our real workhorse instruments are the are things like the Very Large Array in um, New Mexico. Merlin, to some extent, Merlin isn't uh, as well adapted to, um, to to radio galaxies as as some of the telescopes are. The Very Large Array, the Very Long Baseline Array, mostly you you want to have high resolution because um, high 
where you want to be able to make detailed pictures of these things, it turns out that the, the more resolution you have, the more you find out. The very early um, maps of radio galaxies showed would show a couple of blobs, which would be the, the, bu the bubbles, the lobes that the, the jets have blown in the medium. Um, we're now at the stage where we can, we can see exquisite detail of, of fluid dynamical processes in those blobs, provided that we have an, a nice high-resolution radio telescope like the Very Large Array to play with. So we need, we need um, sensitive high-resolution telescopes, and, and this, is actually, this, this whole field is going to get a boost from the next generation of radio telescopes. There is lots we can't do at the moment, with, um, even with a Very Large Array. So the, the, the extended um, Merlin and VLA, the E-Merlin and E-VLA when they come along, are going to be the next the next set of radio instruments to study these things with. We look forward to seeing the results. Thank you very much, Martin Harcastle, for coming and talk to us today. You're welcome. Thanks very much. So thanks, Nick and Martin. Our next segment is about the Square Kilometre Array. It's going to be the future of radio astronomy and is a huge international collaboration to build a radio telescope with a collecting area of one square kilometre. Before Christmas... Jodwell was lucky enough to be hosting one of the Square Kilometre Array meetings, and we had astronomers from all around the world, and so we... Circled like vultures. We did. <laughs> and we, we got them into a small dark room, and we interviewed them. So we'll start off this section with Jodrell's own Professor Peter Wilkinson. With me now is Professor Peter Wilkinson, who is Professor of Radio Astronomy, University of Manchester, and at the Jodrell Bank Observatory itself. Uh, thanks very much for uh, agreeing to talk to us. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be on the Jodcast, which I've heard a lot about. Can I ask you, how did the SKA concept come about? Well, I'm pleased you asked me that question since uh, I was involved with it. Of course, that's the reason why you asked it me. It actually goes back almost, tw oh, actually over 20 years now to 1985. I was visiting what is still the la world's largest interferometer array, the world's largest way of imaging the sky. It's called the Very Large Array in New Mexico. And I was hearing the latest results from a, a famous astronomer describing pictures of a galaxy taken in the line of hydrogen. It's a, a radio line, a radio spectral line, particular wavelength, 21 centimeters wavelength. And you can look at the gas between the stars, a hydrogen gas, by observing this particular radio frequency problem is, as he showed me, that this line, this radio spectral line, is rather weak because although there's a lot of hydrogen in the sky hydrogen atoms sit for about a million years before they decide to emit one of these photons so most of the time one in every whatever it is, thousand billion atoms is only one of them is doing anything and so the, the amount of signal you get, even from all this hydrogen between the stars, is quite low so when you actually turn a telescope onto them, you can't actually see very much unless you sit and observe for long periods of time, maybe a whole day. And even then you can't see much detail. So I was very impressed by what he showed me and said, great, fantastic, isn't this new? This is 20 years ago, remember. And I thought, well, if you really wanted to look at that galaxy with about the resolution that you can do in the optical, with an optical telescope in your back garden even, which is about one arc second, you need an telescope about a hundred times bigger than this biggest telescope in the world and if you work out on the back of an envelope as I did as I was driving back home to the uh, the town where this telescope is controlled from, Socorro in New Mexico with my wife, I said well that's about a square kilometre you know and I thought that's a nice title isn't it 
I didn't actually call it a square kilometre array at the time. I thought about the hydrogen array, but that's how it started. It was a, a basically saying, well, if you really want to image the hydrogen in the universe, then you better build something which is very much bigger than the biggest thing we have today. And about 20 years later, it looks like we're on the path to doing it. So presumably there was a lot of work to uh, go from the initial concept back in 1985 to where we are now, where we're starting to look at possible designs for the SKA and also where to put it. So what, what were the steps in between? Well, of course, like many ideas, this was not uh, unique. There were other people in other parts of the world, in, in India and in the Netherlands, thinking along similar lines, although I think they weren't quite thinking of a square kilometre. They were thinking of big telescopes. In 1991, there was a meeting in, in the USA, actually to celebrate the first 10 years of this very large array, and I gave a talk there, um, which actually called it talked about the hydrogen array and, and laid out that uh, it should be of a certain type of, uh, of instrument, which is broadly similar in some ways as to what's turned out. But really then we started an international program of, uh, of meetings that went all the way through the 1990s, toying with the ideas as to uh, what would the science be other than hydrogen gas studies uh, and how you might make something like this. Because, you see, although we can actually make an interferometer, a square kilometre in, in area, we know how to do it. If you decide to do it like, for example, the very large array, it would probably cost ten times more than we think we can afford. If you try to build an array based on the technology of the 1980s or 70s, which is the very large array, it might cost ten billion euros. We're not really certain, but something like that. And we should be able to build something around a square kilometre for perhaps five or ten times less than that. So the progress we were trying to make was what are all the other scientific areas that would break open if you had this large telescope and then practically how on earth could you make it five or ten times cheaper than we know how to do it uh, ten years ago. So we had a series of meetings in the 1990s then in about 2000 we got really serious and we decided this has to be a fully international fully global event and we signed an international memorandum of agreement or understanding at uh, the uh, General Assembly of the International Astronomical Union in Manchester in 2000, and we formed what's called the International SKA Steering Committee, ISSC. And that steering committee, which is uh, perhaps uh, 16 experienced astronomers from all over the world, has come together and steered the program. In 2002, we, uh, we all agreed to fund an international director, which is Professor Scalizzi, and altogether we've got... Uh, we've given ourselves permission to talk about this project. But a few years ago, we, got, uh, we started to get funding from all over the world. We started to get interest from the funding agencies, to, which recognized that the scientific potential of this area was so good that they were prepared to give us money for initial R&D studies. We're in that phase now, a very serious phase of technology proving. How on earth can you make this thing perhaps five or ten times cheaper? What are the clever ways of using electronics rather than steel? which doesn't get cheaper with time, electronics which does, which enables us to do a, a different type of telescope, a much more electronic telescope. So it's taken, what, nearly 15 years from a first serious discussion of what the SK might be to the period where we stand now on the threshold of getting permission to build it. And that will probably take at least another five years. And what will be the University of Manchester's role in the SKA? Well, of course, it's easy to get bogged down or concentrate on the technology to drive the cost down. It is very, very important. But first and foremost, of course, the SKA was conceived of as a science instrument. In Manchester, our leading push in the science area is the study of pulsars, the rotating neutron stars, the, the radio lighthouses that are the remnant of a star that's exploded and 
crushed all the atoms together in the middle to form one giant atomic nucleus, which we call a neutron star, which, as it spins round, amazingly enough, in certain circumstances, creates these beams of radio waves, which, as they cross us, our line of sight becomes pulses. Now, those pulsars are fantastic tools for science. They're very complicated astrophysical systems, but under certain circumstances, you don't have to worry about the complicated astrophysics. You can just regard them as super clocks, Some of them are so stable, they're as stable as the most stable atomic clocks on the Earth, perhaps keeping time to uh, one second in three million years. And uh, Einstein would have loved this. If you find one of these stable clocks in an orbit around another compact object, it could be another neutron star, and we found those in a binary orbit, or uh, what we're hoping to find with the SKA is a pulsar in orbit around a black hole, which is probably an even heavier star, which has gone supernova and uh, crushed the centre down, not to a neutron star, but even further into a black hole, then you have a neutron star moving around a very, very intense gravitational field. Einstein told us, and it's been proven over and over again, that if you move a clock, which is a, a spinning neutron star, in and out of a gravitational field, the clock ticks, change with time. In other words, the speed of the clock varies as to according to the strength of the, the gravitational field. The stronger the gravitational field, the slower the clock runs. And we're already finding, and uh, George Bank has been in, in, involved with this for many years now, so far Einstein's general theory of relativity has been proven right at about the one-twentieth um, of a percentage point, 0.05%. The predictions have been proven to be correct. But we know, for reasons we can't go into here, that in the end general relativity must be found wanting. So one of the exciting areas of the SKA as far as Manchester is concerned is to find pulsar around a black hole and we believe, we hope although Einstein, and Einstein would forgive us to test general relativity to destruction and to find out that in uh, at the very great limit and great sensitivity that uh, the predictions of general relativity don't conform to what you actually see and so we'll need the next generation theory after general relativity But at the moment, general relativity has proven to be remarkably robust. So it'll have to be a a remarkably strange and uh, what we call a highly relativistic system to test it. It'll be the SKA, we think, which finds 20,000 new pulsars, one or two of which may be these very special systems, neutron stars going around black holes that enable us to test general relativity to destruction. So here's hoping that the SKA will rewrite the book on our understanding of general relativity. Very exciting project. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Okay, thanks so much, Nick. It's a pleasure to talk to the Jodcast. After talking to Peter, Nick caught up with Professor Richard Scalizzi, the International SKA Director. Thank you very much for for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here in Jodrell Bank. Let's start off with uh, the simple explanation of what is the SKA. So this is a telescope which will be one square kilometre in total collecting area. It won't be in just one place. It will be spread out perhaps over as far as uh, distances of 3,000 kilometres. Okay, so why do we need such a large radio telescope? Why do we need one square kilometre of collecting area? We need it because that gives us much greater sensitivity to the very faint radio signals that we get from, uh, from outer space, and in particular the signals that come from very close to the beginning of the universe, from just after the Big Bang. That is what you can do with a telescope like the Square Kilometre Array. It will be something like 50 times as powerful as the current most powerful telescope on Earth. 
So we can't do the sort of science that uh, the SKA will be capable of doing with our current telescopes. The SKA will be 50 times more powerful, but what can our current telescopes give us? Well, for example, our current telescopes only look out a certain distance, perhaps half the age of the universe, uh, looking at the most fundamental element of the universe, which is hydrogen. And with the SKA, you'll be able to go almost to the, to the very beginning of the universe. So that br- takes us back into the early phases of, of the universe, how it evolved. And we're very particularly interested in seeing what the explanation could be for the uh, increasing acceleration of the universe that's just recently been found. But people don't know why, what causes that, and they, so they say the explanation is dark energy. Now, do we expect to find anything new with the SKA, or are we just going to find more of the same, just deeper, fainter? Well, we'll do a lot of deeper, fainter, but when uh, you build a telescope with the great capacities of the SKA, which go you know, factors of tens or even a hundred in different parameters, like uh, sensitivity, like how much of the sky you can see at the same time, we know from past experience that we'll always find new things. That's been the case with every single telescope we've ever built. When you write down a science case at the beginning and get your money, what you work on when it's built is only 5% of what you said you were going to work on. The rest of it's all these new things that have been found. So you mentioned that the one square kilometre of collecting area is not going to be in one particular place, so it's not going to be one single antenna. So you're going to have lots of, different, lots of smaller antennas. What kind of antennae will the SKA be made of? It looks like it'll be made up of uh, three different types of antennae or sensors. One will be uh, at very low frequencies, which will be dipoles, simple, uh, simple wire dipoles. Perhaps not so simple, but in any case, dipoles. Another sensor technology may be a completely new type of technology, uh, aperture arrays, particularly being developed here in, in Europe. And those are as a, t- a sensor technology with no moving parts whatsoever. It's just steered electronically and receives its uh, radiation that passes that all down uh, electronically as well. And the third sensor technology is the, uh, the familiar ones of, of small dishes and what we're thinking of there is dishes of, of diameter maybe 10 to 15 metres and we probably need about four or 5,000 of them so it is a, a gigantic telescope in that respect. Uh, we would expect to spend, uh, put 50% of the collecting area within five kilometres uh, in the centre core, and the rest then spread over 3,000 kilometres. Can you build the SKA antennae with current technology, or do you have to build something new? Well, the answer to that is yes, we do need to build uh, something new if we want to realise the full potential of the telescope. We could build it right now with the technology that we have available. We can build small dishes, we can put our uh, our receivers in there but in order to make it affordable for the collecting area we need to get to the distant universe we have to make breakthroughs in terms of making our electronics much more compact much less power hungry and so on and these are all issues which are or, or, or problems that we share with the information technology arena and so we're benefiting from Moore's law. You mentioned that there are different designs which you could possibly use for the separate antenna systems of the SKA. How are you going to decide which one to use? Well, I think we're going to actually use all three. The, the different antenna uh, technologies cover different frequency ranges. And For example, the simple dipoles I mentioned are uh, what we want to use for looking at the very distant part of the universe in the hydrogen. And the other arrays of uh, and sensor technologies are for higher frequencies. So I think we'll probably try and use all three. 
but they will use the same backbone structures, the same infrastructure, fiber structure to transfer transfer the signals from the telescope back to the central data processor. And so it really is like thinking about different instruments uh, on an optical telescope. You have one optical telescope, and you put a different uh, spectrometer in there for different types of science. In our case, we have different telescopes, but we have the same infrastructure, which is the fiber network. This is a huge project. How long is it going to take to build? Well, where, where are we? Almost the end of 2006. The first ideas were brought forward in 1991. Uh, by three different groups, one of whom is uh, Professor Peter Wilkinson, who you've already talked to. So we've been going 15 years already, and my guess it'll be uh, another 15 years before we've finished. So it'll be something like a 30-year project by the, from the first time somebody wrote down the idea to actually having it fully operational. How much is it going to cost? Can you even put an estimate on how much this is going to cost? Yes, we can certainly put an estimate on it. Uh, we've done that at, at a, around about 1 billion euros, so 1,000 million euros. But you want to do the calculation, divide that by a million square meters, and it's only 1,000 euros per square meter for everything in, included, which is only fractionally more expensive than a piece of carpet you might find in a hotel. Now, that sounds like a, a brilliant uh, a soundbite for the uh, the accountants. <laughs> cheap at twice the price. Uh, how is the SKA going to fit in with other radio telescopes like uh, the E. Merlin Array, EVLA, uh, the VLBI systems? How is the SKA going to fit in with those? Well, that's a very good point, and it's a, an issue that uh, the astronomical community is looking at. The telescope, the SKA, will actually be located in the southern hemisphere. The, the two candidate sites that are left over after our shortlisting process are both in the south, one in Australia and one in southern Africa. The telescopes that, you all, that you've mentioned are all in the Northern Hemisphere. They look at different parts of the sky. And so there's, there's always different objects, specific objects, which are in the Northern Hemisphere, which won't be visible by the SKA in the South. So there will be a role for telescopes in the North going forward into the SKA era. There's also the, the, the issue of training young people. It's very useful to have a telescope in your own local backyard, more or less, in, in, on which you can uh, you know, put your graduate students to, to understand about, uh, about radio astronomy or any, any astronomy at all. But whether there's going to be enough money there to run all the big facilities that we have right now at the level we're running them, that is something we still have to look into. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Richard Scalizzi. Thank you very much for giving us uh, your time and talking to us about the SKA. We look forward to the first light of the SKA, which will certainly be uh, sooner probably than we expect. Well, thank you very much. That was Professor Richard Scalizzi there. Now, we've heard a bit about the SKA, and we've heard that they're choosing a site. The shortlist has been narrowed down to two countries, South Africa and Australia. So we thought we'd give each of those countries a chance to put its case forward. First up... South Africa. With me now is Ms. Anita Lutz, who is the project manager of CAT, another one of these acronyms which astronomy seems to be littered with. Please tell us what CAT is and what its relationship is to the SKA. CAT stands for the Karoo Array Telescope. It's a telescope consisting of 20 dishes we're going to build in the Karoo, which is one of the um, provinces or areas in the provinces in South Africa. And um, it is basically a 1% demonstrator for the SKA project. So you've already built this? No, we're currently in the design phase. We've got a, a team of 30 engineers based in Cape Town, and we hope to be going to site in May 2008 with the first dish. So these 20 dishes comprise 
1% of the complete SKA. Now, why why South Africa? Why is South Africa a good place for uh, the SKA? Why should the SKA be in South Africa? We have areas in South Africa that uh, conforms to the radio quietness um, that is needed for the SKA. So we've got superb sites for radio astronomy still, vast open lands with no people, no radio signals and um, no TV signals and so on. Now, South Africa has uh, a, a number of the world's biggest telescopes. Why should South Africa get the SKA over the other big contender, which is Australia? What is the benefit of South Africa over Australia? Well, uh, technically the two sites, Australia and South Africa, are very similar. Um, we believe that South Africa can perhaps provide a better cost-effective solution. We do believe that we will probably be able to come in on infrastructure side much cheaper. We do have a number of the best telescopes in the world in the region, for instance the HES telescope and the SALT telescope with different wavelengths, so we can do astronomy across the electromagnetic spectrum quite easily. So just tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the CAT project. The CAT project is, um, is interesting in itself because we want to demonstrate a whole lot of um, technical issues for the SKA, but we also want to um, develop an instrument that will position South Africa again as, as a world-class instrument and doing world-class science with it. Uh, so we're using the instrument to build competency in South Africa and also to build industry and then to participate, obviously, in the global game. It's got a team of 30 engineers based in Cape Town. We're following a systems engineering approach, which is quite different from the way that radio telescopes are normally built. And um, we have quite a good plan in place of various prototypes that we will eventually roll out to site. The first 15-meter telescope or the first 15-meter antenna is being built at Hartebezoek as we speak. They're digging their foundations. And um, that will then give us a test bed where we can test the whole system from the DSP side, the digital signal processing stuff, the software that starts developing and so on. So that when we go to site in May 2008, the risk is very low for us, the technical risk, and then we will push the first buttons for the first experiment in December 2009. Tell us a little bit about the individual antennas. What's the technology? We're doing a, quite an innovative antenna, as far as we think. Um, we're breaking away from the normal antenna design, and we've employed a company that normally works in the defense arena together with a composites company to give us a 15-meter reflector that will come in around $1,000 per square meter, where normal dish design would normally give you a dish of, or a reflective surface of around $3,000 per square meter. So it is an innovative design with a very, very small backing structure, a very elegant composite structure. You mentioned that the structure of your um, team is rather different. You're doing things in a different way. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Why are you different? Very early on in the project, the government told us, or the funding agencies told us, that we have got our money, but we need to push the button at the end of 2009. Now, that's a very tough target because normally you need 10 to 15 years before you can actually commission a telescope of this nature. Uh, we said in order to do it within five years, which is at the time that they gave us the money, we needed to do it differently, and we believe that systems engineering approach will give us uh, that advantage. Well, that sounds very interesting, and we wish the best for you and in in, uh, your, your bid for the SKA. Thank you very much to you, Nihalutz. Thank you for being with us. It's a big pleasure being here. Thanks. Okay, that was South Africa. Next, Nick talked to Professor Brian Boyle, the chair of the International SKA Steering Committee and also head of the Australia Telescope National Facility. Thank you very much for, for being with us today. What makes Western Australia such a, a good place for the SKA? There's a number of reasons that makes Western Australia an excellent place for the SKA, indeed an excellent place for many future radio telescopes. First of all, Western Australia is a very isolated place. It has very low levels of radio frequency interference that would otherwise 
drown out the faint radio signals from the stars and galaxies that we're trying to study. Uh, Secondly, it has uh, an excellent uh, population of skilled engineers uh, to draw on for the construction of radio telescopes. It's also got uh, an increasing focus on employing radio astronomers in its universities. Uh, And then finally, it's got uh, an excellent ionosphere uh, above Western Australia that will allow us to do uh, low-frequency observations uh, right down to frequencies in the FM band uh, to study the origin of the first stars in the universe. That sounds like Australia is is just the place. Uh, How will you operate the SKA in Western Australia? Well, there's a number of different potential models for operating the SKA. The favoured one at the moment is for SK to be operated remotely. So the central core station, which would, if Western Australia were chosen as a location for the SK, the central core is about 400 kilometres inland from Geraldton on the west coast of Western Australia. It's a remote, isolated spot. It's unlikely that we'd be able to house or accommodate or even attract a significant number of people to such a a lonely and isolated spot. It's beautiful, but there's not a lot to do at the weekends in that spot. So we would operate the telescope remotely from a science centre in in Geraldton uh, or indeed in Perth. So the supercomputer for processing the data would be in Geraldton. We would pipe the data from uh, the core site to the supercomputer at Geraldton or at Perth, uh, process the data, and then transmit those process results around the world to various science centres that we establish. I think one of the nice things that we would also like to do, of course, is because of the the square kilometre area is very much a a software telescope. It's uh, uh, very dependent on high data transmission rates, broadband links. The opportunity to pipe uh, SKA data or indeed have people control the SKA data from their own desktop at home is uh, quite a compelling one, and perhaps even uh, giving a fraction of the time on the SKA to school children around the world so that uh, people in uh, year 11 or year 12 in Australia or in sixth form in, uh, here in the UK could actually do some leading-edge science experiments from their uh, own desk in, in school. I think would be a, a remarkable opportunity provided by the SKA. If uh, the SKA is cited in Australia. What's it going to mean for the country as a whole? So you've touched on the use of the SKA possibly by by school children for education, plus also it's going to attract the radio astronomers. What else could the SKA bring to Australia? Well, I think it offers Australia an opportunity, the uh, opportunity to engage in leading-edge technology developments, particularly in the areas of information technology. I think it also serves as an icon uh, to the public uh, for the, the can-do uh, approach uh, of Australia to science. I mean, the Parkes radio telescope uh, has served as an icon for the Australian public for over 40 years. Uh, of course, it was uh, famously recognised as the uh, place to receive the first transmissions of man walking in the moon and I think of course uh, we see here places like Jodrell Bank what, a, what an icon that serves had to inspire people in humankind's uh, creativity and desire to understand the universe and, and if it can inspire people to appreciate science appreciate our quest for knowledge in the universe I think that's its major outcome it will certainly be an inspiring instrument and uh, it will be a focus for uh, uh, radio astronomy around the world, uh, um, not just Australia. Uh, but what kind of expertise does Australia have in building such uh, an instrument? Australia's got a great deal of expertise. Of course, uh, Australia was in one of the pioneers, along with the United Kingdom, in the development of radio astronomy uh, immediately after the Second World War. So Australia's been involved in building radio telescopes now for over 50 years. Uh, we've got particular strengths in the area of signal processing. 
uh, in the development of receiver packages for telescopes and indeed in the construction of antennas themselves. I think we've also got a very strong scientific community. That's really important because it is, after all, the science that drives the design and the operation of the telescope in the longer term. So all around, I think Australia has got a, a tremendous capability but before I get you know, too much waving the, uh, uh, waving the Australian flag here, I should say that the critical component of SK is its international nature, that no one country could even hope to master all the bits of technology requirements for the SK. This is truly a global project, and irrespective of whether or not the telescope is actually sighted in Australia, I see a very strong role for Australia playing in the construction, the operation, and the utilisation of the telescope wherever it's located, and I think that's really, when it comes down to it, it's the participation in the project that's the most important aspect. Now, you are the chair of the International SKA Steering Committee. What does that mean? Does that mean that you're the person who who decides which way everything goes, or or what? No, for the next two years, I'm simply chief cat herder. I I really, you know, as chair, it's a wonderful opportunity to uh, assist in in, in facilitating uh, the emergence of, of a single project overall, is to corral these national efforts is to uh, work with my colleagues in the International Steering Committee to produce strategies for the next few years which will see us at the beginning of the next decade actually be in a position to essentially write the first checks for the constructions of the first phase of the, the square kilometre array. In that regard, of course, I'm very privileged not only to be working with my scientific colleagues but also my colleagues in the funding agencies and bringing the funding agencies together uh, that so over the next few years they have enough confidence in the project uh, to move forward uh, by committing the required amounts of money to move forward to construction. I mean, in that regard, I think the SK is moving forward very well. Uh, strong interest from research agencies in, in supporting the project in, in the longer term and real, realising that the, the scientists around the world are seeing SKA as one of the key instruments that will solve some of the most fundamental problems in contemporary physics for the 21st century. Well, thank you very much indeed, and we we wish Australia all the best in its bid for um, hosting the uh, SKA. Professor Brian Ball, thank you very much indeed for taking the time out to talk to us. Thank you very much. It's been a blast. The SKA is going to be a major development in astronomy, with the potential for spectacular advances in our understanding of the universe. My thanks go to Richard Scalizzi, Peter Wilkinson, Anita Lutz and Brian Boyle for talking to us about the SKA on the Jodcast. More information about the SKA can be found using the links listed on the Jodcast website. Fascinating stuff. And we'll have to wait until some point either this year or next year for the final decision on the site for the square kilometre array to be made. Mm. We did actually have to cut down those interviews slightly so that we could fit it within the hour-long shows. But if you would like to hear the full versions of the interviews, then download them from the interview feed on the Jodcast website. That's at www.jodcast.net. Now, talking about the Jodcast website, the Jodcast is only one of many astronomy podcasts out there on the interweb. It certainly is. So we thought we'd give you a roundup of some of the interesting things we've heard on other astronomy podcasts in the last month. So the first one I thought I'd mention was Space Pod, which is a podcast from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratories in Oxford in the United Kingdom. 
they've just launched their podcast. I think it's going to be once a month. And their first one was on the 1st of December. They give you all the latest on the UK's involvement in space science. I had a conversation with one of the people who's involved with that. He's one of the main people in the UK who's working on the stereo mission, looking at the sun. Ah. And he's kindly volunteered to provide us with some mission updates throughout 2007, as it is International Heliophysical Year. It is indeed. So that was the first one. The second one is NASA Cast, which, as you might guess, is a podcast from NASA. Now, why I specifically mention them is that they've got lots of really interesting videos of the shuttle mission to the International Space Station just before Christmas. And you can see everything as it's being launched from a variety of different views. Oh, wow. It's pretty yeah. cool. Um, and the third podcast I'll mention is Planetary Radio. The recent episode, they talked to Steve Ostro of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about a near-Earth asteroid, KW4 which is a really fascinating asteroid because it's not actually one asteroid it's a binary system it's got two asteroids and they're orbiting each other well only just apparently on the the largest one if you lifted something a couple of metres off the surface it would be able to drift off it's a very strange system Mm. I certainly hadn't heard about it before I heard it on planetary radio Mm -hmm. so check those out we'll put links to them on the show notes fantastic thank you but the other stalwart of the Judcast is still here. Ian Morrison has been diligently checking out what is going to be in the January night sky, and he joins us now. The January night sky. Looking south in the late evening in January, we have one of the most beautiful skyscapes that we have all year. Almost south, and fairly high up now, will be the constellation of Orion the Hunter. There are three quite obvious stars that make up his belt. Betelgeuse, a red giant star, is up to the left, and Rigel, a bright blue star, is down to the right. Betelgeuse is his right arm. Rigel, I think, points out his left knee. In fact, he's holding a shield against the onslaught of the bull, Taurus. Taurus has two lovely groups of stars, clusters, called the Hyades and the Pleiades. The Hyades cluster makes up the face of the bull, and Aldebaran, another red giant star, his eye. In fact, Aldebaran is only about half the distance of the stars that make up the Hyades cluster, and is moving in a quite different direction through space. So it's not part of them. Up to the right of the Hyades is a beautiful group of stars called the Pleiades, lovely to observe with binoculars, or a telescope at low power, often called the Seven Sisters. In fact, you can fairly easily see nine stars there, the Seven Sisters and their parents. There are about 300 stars in all, and it lies about 400 light-years from us. So that means, of course, we see it as it was about 400 years ago. Up above Taurus, moving towards the zenith, is the constellation of Auriga, and the bright yellow star Capella, Auriga lies along the plain of the Milky Way, and thus it's very rich in stars. And with binoculars, you might even pick out some groupings. They're open clusters, actually M36, M37, and M38. They're all part of the wonderful catalogue of fuzzy-type objects that was produced by Charles Messier in the 1700s. Up to the left of Orion, we have the two bright stars, Castor and Pollux, which are the head of the twins, 
Gemini is the constellation. Down at the sort of feet of the upper twin that has Castor as his head, you might pick out another rather lovely star cluster, M35, which can be seen on a dark night with binoculars. Over to the left of Orion is the very small constellation of Canis Minor, but with one bright star, Procyon. Then if you follow the three stars of Orion's belt down to the lower left, you come to the brightest star we can see in the Northern Hemisphere, which is Sirius in Canis Major. It often appears to be a whole range of colours. It twinkles. That's due to the atmosphere, and we sometimes see shafts of blue light and red light, as well as what it should be, which is really white. If you do have a clear sky and a reasonably good southern horizon, just start at Sirius with a pair of binoculars and just drop down a few degrees, and you may pick up a rather lovely open cluster called M41, another of the Messier catalogue objects. If you can see it, it does have a very nice little blue group of stars, and within them, one very lovely red star. It makes a lovely colour contrast. It's a red giant. It's a lovely object to look at with a small telescope. To the left of Procyon is a fairly blank part of the sky with Cancer, and there is a lovely little group of stars there called the Beehive Cluster, or Pricipe. And further over, and basically rising in the east, at about the 9.30, 10 o'clock mark, is Leo the Lion. I point that out to finally say that between the brightest star Regulus, which is at the bottom right of Leo, and Castor and Pollux, you will see, about five to six degrees away from Regulus, the planet Saturn, adding to that part of the sky, the only planet that we can actually observe in the late evening sky. So let's hope we have some nice clear nights in January, and you can take your binoculars, or just your eyes, go to a dark location and just observe what is a very lovely skyscape. Okay, well now let's have a look at the planets. I've already mentioned that Saturn lies between Leo uh, and Gemini and will be visible basically all evening, but it's highest in the south uh, after midnight, perhaps about one o'clock in the morning. The rings of Saturn are in fact closing at the present time, so it doesn't look quite as bright as it sometimes is. I actually observed it with a telescope just the other evening. And it's obvious that the rings are not really quite so dramatic as they have been. But it's still a sweet sight in a small telescope. And you should easily be able to see the brightest of its satellites, which is Titan. And a telescope of about 8 inches or more will actually show up quite a number of the satellites. So it is still worth looking at, perhaps not quite as good as it was a few years ago. Now to Jupiter, the giant of our planetary system. It's lying in the constellation of Libra, and it passed behind the Sun during the early part of November. By the beginning of January, it's rising at about 6 o'clock, low in the southeast, about 100 minutes or so before the Sun. As the month continues, it rises early and in fact nearly four hours before the Sun by the month's end. Sadly, Jupiter is now in the constellation of Scorpius. It's moving along the most southerly part of the ecliptic, so it's never going to be that high in the sky. In fact, it will rise to about the height that we see the Sun in the sky in the midwinter months. So the atmosphere will probably hinder our view of the lovely surface where we have these 
equatorial bands and even the great red spot. So again, it is worth looking at, not quite as good as it has been for the last few years. We have to wait a few years yet until it comes out of that southern part of the ecliptic and climbs up into the northern sky. Mercury. It passes behind the sun on January the 7th, and thus we will not be able to see it until the very last week of January, when it may be seen in the western sky just after sunset to the lower right of Venus. It'll be about magnitude minus 1 compared to Venus magnitude minus 4, but binoculars should help you pick it out in the twilight. A good thing to do is to go to a site where there's a good western horizon. Be there before the sun's due to set. See where the sun sets, and then you'll know roughly where to look along the horizon, up and to the left, to see first Mercury, and then, further away from the sun's position, the planet Venus. So I've just been talking about Venus, really. It passed behind the sun on October the 27th, so it's now had quite a time to move out to the eastern side of the sun, becoming visible, as I've said, after sunset, setting about one hour after the sun. Binoculars should help you pick it up really quite easily. It's very nice to observe Venus with a small telescope as it moves around the sun, and you see the phases rather like the phases of the moon. It was the observation of these phases of Venus, and in particular that it could show a nearly full phase, that proved to Galileo that in fact the planets were going around the sun and were not in orbit around the Earth. Well, let's just finish with a couple of highlights of the month. On January the 4th, we do have a meteor shower. It's called the Quadranted Meteor Shower, or the Quadrantids. That's because the radiant, which is where the meteors appear to come from, was in a very small constellation called Quadranted, which represented a quadrant. Before the days of telescopes, they were a way of measuring the elevation of a star as they came due south. If, along with that elevation and the time at which that happens were recorded, you could actually chart the star's position in the sky. So the quadrant was a key instrument used by Tycho Brahe and others to make a wonderful star chart of the sky. In fact, on that star chart, Tycho, in effect, plotted the movements of the wandering stars, the planets. He did this over about 20 years or so, and that wonderful data set was handed on to Johann Kepler. He was able to deduce the laws of planetary motion, and that helped lead Isaac Newton to the law of gravity. So a simple quadrant really has a, a rather famous history. In fact, that area of the sky now is between the constellation of Bootes and Ursa Major the Plough. So if you find the three stars that make up the tail of the, uh, of the plough, and at about four o'clock in the morning, or three o'clock or so on Jan the 4th, that'll be basically in the northeast, and the tail will be vertical. The great bear will be sort of climbing out of the, of the ground. So below that, you may have a chance to see a fair number of meteors. They're not terribly bright, and sadly, at the same time, high up in the south, in the constellation of Gemini, is the almost full moon. So we will have to be lucky to see them, but it perhaps is worth a try. At the very end of the month, we have a nice sight on Jan the 20th, in the evening, just after sunset, when there's a very thin crescent moon. 
and it can be seen along with Venus just above. Over to the right is in fact the planet Neptune, its eighth magnitude. Now that should be able to be picked up with binoculars, but of course it's only soon after sunset there may be too much light in the sky. But certainly it's worth looking at with a small telescope to see if you could pick up Neptune as well. There is a chart showing exactly where they are on the night sky pages of the Jodrell Bank website. So everything I've told you is there in the night sky page. I hope it will help you to observe the night sky this January. Good hunting. Thank you, Ian, and more from him next month. OK, Dave, as it's a new year... Yes. ...and we now have some very limited funding, um, we're going to have a competition with prizes. Prizes? OK, as our main prize, we have a, an exclusive Jodcast T-shirt. Very, very exclusive indeed. But as well as a Jodcast T-shirt, you will get a 2007 National Radio Astronomy Observatory calendar. That's the National Radio Astronomy Observatory of the United States... And they're very kindly providing us with some 2007 calendars with the winners of the NRAO Radio Telescope Image Contest. Uh And we'll be giving a couple of those away as runner-up prizes as well. Great stuff. So, Stuart, those sound like amazing prizes. But the question is, how do people get their hands on them? Well, they answer this very simple question. In what year was the first pulsar, that's a pulsating neutron star, Discovered. Send your answers by Sunday the 14th of January, uh, either through the feedback form on our website at www.judcast.net or by phone on plus four four with the optional O, one six one four zero eight one four four two. Right, so coming up on next month's show, we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Jodrell Bank and the Lovell Telescope by having an interview or excerpts from an interview with Sir Bernard Lovell who was the creator of the Lovell Telescope. So we'll look forward to that next month uh, along with the return of Ask an Astronomer and of course Ian Morrison's Night Sky. Oh just before we go um, we should say thank you to the very nice people who reviewed us on iTunes. Um, It took me a while to find some of them because I didn't realise that iTunes kept reviews in different places depending on which country you come from. So thank you very much to those people. And thank you also for the feedback that we've been getting through the feedback form on the website. And if you would like uh, your very own personalised email from the Judcast team, go to www.judcast.net and fill in the form. You can, of course, also uh, phone us on 0161 408 1442. So yes, that brings the January issue of the Judcast to an end. I think we just need to thank Ian, Nick, Dr. Martin Hardcastle, Professor Peter Wilkinson, Richard Scalizzi, Brian Boyle, and Anita Lutz. Thank you also to Megan for the news, and thanks also to Steve Anderson, who's provided us with the intro, both writing it and recording it, which is fantastic. So there we are. Thank you very much for downloading us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next month. Bye-bye. Uh, Peter the Fool.